United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a great and fast-hitting show for you today, so my friends, once more, into the fray. For those of you who are just joining us for the first time, we had to split last week's show, Climate Change 101, into two parts in order to keep the show close to our target length. Now, I encourage you, if you missed it, to go back and listen. However, this show is jam-packed, so let's just dive straight in where we left off last week with the four horsemen of climate change, or rather, the main greenhouse gases. First up is carbon dioxide, or CO2. And while water vapor hangs in the atmosphere for nine days, CO2 manages to hang on in the atmosphere for up to 95 years. Yep, 95 years. That means its ability to radiate absorbed solar energy is significant over an extremely large time span. It's also used as the baseline for understanding other gases, global warming potential, or GWP. Now, you might be saying, hey, hold up. You just said last week that water vapor can have a significant multiplier effect on greenhouse gases. So why is CO2 so much more important? Well, aside from CO2's atmospheric lifespan and being directly traceable to anthropogenic activities, water vapor hangs out in the lower atmosphere, where CO2 tends to hang out in the upper atmosphere, where there's actually very little water vapor, and it significantly reduces the amount of infrared radiation that escapes back into space. All right, moving on, our next gas, O3 or ozone, is a funny one, as we both want it and don't want it at the same time, but based almost entirely on location. So think of it like this. You live in Bangor, Maine, and you've got your favorite hoodie. That hoodie's pretty important to you to have around. Now, take that same hoodie, but you live in Humpty Doo in the Northern Territory in Australia. That hoodie's not going to be that much fun to have around anymore. So it's based entirely on location, and ozone's similar in that in the stratosphere, it's largely responsible for the absorption of UV rays. Now, what little UVB slips through causes sunburn in humans and direct DNA damage in both plants and animals. Yet at the same time, it's also responsible for vitamin D creation in the human body. This is why the ozone layer is so important. Ozone in the lower atmosphere, however, is not created directly by industrial operations, but rather it's created when sunlight hits air containing hydrocarbons, and it's one of the major contributors to smog. It has a very short half-life of close to about 30 minutes, so its global effect of radiative forcing is almost negligible. However, its localized effect of radiative forcing is extremely high and has been estimated in some places to have 150% the radiative forcing of CO2. To bring this to a bit of a modern analogy, there have been many reports about the reduction in pollution in major cities with the COVID-19 quarantine. Suddenly, Beijing has clear skies and you can see the mountains in India again. Debatable that you couldn't see it in the first place, but nevertheless. And LA is once again beautiful? I've heard some argue that this will help reverse climate change, but while we temporarily have a reprieve, Keep in mind ozone, one of the most significant contributors to smog, clears relatively quickly, 
Yet the radiative ability of CO2 has a lifespan upwards of 95 years, methane 12 and nitrous oxide 120, but we'll cover that in a minute. To stop and hopefully reverse climate change, we need to permanently change the way we power our lives. A quarantine, while extremely effective in slowing the spread of a pandemic, is not our answer to climate change. So while every little bit helps and makes our cities of the world a little more enjoyable for the time being, the global stay-at-home orders are not going to suddenly put us on the right path. On to CH4 or methane. It's the major component of natural gas, has a GWP of 84 over a 20-year period, and comes from three major sources. Now, some of you might be having the odd moment of yelling, cow farts! out loud in an effort to answer. And aside from that being very odd for anyone else in the room hearing you yell that with your headphones on, it's actually not entirely accurate. Rather, it's the belches of ruminants or hooved animals that chew their cud, cows being one, that release the methane, not their farts. According to the Australian government, 56% of all Australian methane emissions comes directly from livestock. Now, before anyone yells, ban beef! You should know a recent study found that a 3% diet of seaweed reduced methane emissions in cattle by 80%. I personally find this really fascinating, so we'll keep a keen eye out for more research in this sector. But back to methane and sources. These are essentially a geological path, a biological path, and an industrial path. Now, for the industrial source, the creation of methane isn't that economical, so it's minor, especially with the current abundance of natural gas. The geological path of methane is through the breakup of sedimentary strata. Think fracking, all right? Now, the biological path is through ruminants, as we discussed, rice paddies, which is far from an insignificant source, actually, and within rotting biomass. Now, the latter is of extreme concern as warming temperatures in the Arctic cause methane gas to release in the melting permafrost. This in turn produces more methane gas, which further warms, creating a climate feedback loop. This is also a contributor to polar amplification, which we'll discuss that further in a minute. That also reminds me that there's a study that came out February 19th, I believe, of this year, which suggests that the current amount of anthropogenic methane is underestimated by between 25 and 40 percent. Pretty significant. And I'll make sure the link gets thrown up on the website. As far as the greenhouse gases go, finally, let's look at N2O or nitrous oxide. Now, you probably know a lot more about it than you think as it's a major component in nitrate fertilizers, our main concern. It's referred to as nitrous in race cars. It's called laughing gas and used in both dentistry and medical procedures. And it's also the main propellant in a lot of aerosols and is especially used in whipped cream. Yes, laughing gas makes your whipped cream come out, also known as the double happiness effect. Okay, I made that last bit up, but as a public service announcement, do not breathe it in as it can be very dangerous. That is a fact. Now, as far as climate change goes, nitrous oxide is a very powerful gas. It has a GWP of 298. Yes, 298 times that of CO2 over a 100-year span, and it has a life in the atmosphere of 120 years. That said, because of the low concentrations, it's estimated that its contribution to global warming is one-third that of CO2. By some estimates, 38% of nitrous oxide released is a direct result of human activity, 79% of which comes from nitrate fertilizers. However, Nobel laureate Paul Crutzen suggests that the release through nitrate fertilizers has been underestimated significantly. 
While we talked about the term anthropogenic last week, the Anthropocene, on the other hand, is a term that's catching on, but it's hotly debated in the scientific community, denoting the current epoch or geological age when mankind has become the dominant force behind a changing climate. Now, we currently live in the Holocene, which started 11,650 years ago with the retreat of the last glacial maximum, the event that carved the lakes in Minnesota for my listeners there, and also coincides with the beginning of modern human activity, mainly the move from hunter-gatherer to agriculture. The term Anthropocene, on the other hand, was coined in the early 2000s by Nobel laureate Paul Crutzen, yep, the guy we just talked about. While the scientific community is in absolute agreement about anthropogenic climate change, the Anthropocene debate is a bit more difficult as epochs need to be defined in geological terms and be able to be pinpointed in an exact boundary layer. I'm not going to dive into all the suggestions on where that should be defined as, as for our purposes, it's just important to be familiar with the term and its origins. All right, on to polar amplification and why that's important. Now, this isn't unique to Earth, and it happens on almost any planet that's capable of transporting heat via atmospheric or large ocean currents. It's a phenomenon as a result of those currents that causes the poles to heat more through solar radiation than a simple planetary equilibrium calculation would predict. The Arctic has warmed two to three times the global average as a result of polar amplification, and while the rapid heating is an undisputed harbinger of anthropogenic climate change, there is a lot of dispute as to how the increased warming in the Arctic affects mid-latitude climate. Now, it's far too complicated to dive into in this show, but I'll be happy to detail the debate if there's enough feedback requesting it. Now let's look at the Montreal Protocol, the Kyoto Protocol, and the Paris Agreement. The Montreal Protocol was set forth to reduce stratospheric ozone depletion and was agreed upon on September 16, 1987. It entered into force on January 1st of 1989. Since then, it has undergone nine revisions, and we'll dig into this a bit more next week as we look at how the hole in the ozone has changed resulting from this. The Kyoto Protocol, on the other hand, could easily take up a show all on its own. However, for our purposes, I'll try and be brief for now. It was an international treaty which extends the UNFCCC 1992 framework to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, largely by targeting six greenhouse gases. Yeah, we talked about four of the main ones, but there's a whole slew of other ones as well. The Kyoto Protocol was agreed upon on December 11, 1997, and entered into force February 16, 2005. Now, the Kyoto Protocol's purpose, as stated in Article 2, was the greenhouse gas emissions should be reduced to a, quote, level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system, end quote. Now, legally binding targets were set for 38 parties. The first commitment period ended in 2012, and the second, called the Doha Amendment, will end this year. It was largely considered a failure as both India and China were exempt, and the U.S. failed to ever ratify it. On the other hand, the Paris Agreement was an attempt to succeed where the Kyoto Protocol failed and was adopted by consensus on December 12, 2015, and received enough signatures to go into effect on October 5, 2016. In order to gain global consensus amongst the 196 state parties negotiating it, a bottoms-up approach was taken letting each party set their own national targets towards achieving the global goal of, quote, holding the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, recognizing that this would significantly reduce the risks and impacts of climate change, end quote. 
How's that for a run-on sentence? Anyway, this is contrary to the top-down approach taken at the Kyoto Protocol that set legally binding targets. Now, under this agreement, each party submits its own plan and must report on its own progress every five years to the UNFCCC. There's a ton more detail to dive into here, but your understanding for now should be sufficient. Finally, before we wrap up this week, let's look at two numbers that come up most often and may seem confusing when you look at them, namely 1.5 degrees C and 2 degrees C. Where did they come from and what's the difference between them in real world terms? Now, the fascinating part to start off with is the original suggestion of 2 degrees Celsius actually didn't come from hard climate research. Rather, it was a marginal remark made by economist W.D. Nordhaus in a 1975 paper he wrote titled, Can We Control Carbon Dioxide? The 2 degree C target remained largely unremarkable until 1990 when the IPCC published AR1. While 2 degree C wasn't mentioned specifically in that report, it was brought to bear in the same year through the Advisory Group on Greenhouse Gases, or AGGG. The significance here is the AGGG report was referenced by the German Advisory Council during the first Conference of Parties, or COP1, of the UNFCCC which was chaired by Angela Merkel, then German Ministry of the Environment and presently German Chancellor. Chancellor Merkel being convinced of this target helped solidify it into the global vernacular, if you will, at the 2010 G8 summit in Copenhagen. 1.5 degrees Celsius, on the other hand, is grounded in research as the tipping point for seeing dramatic change in many of the Earth's climate systems. Now, is everything below it rainbows and unicorns? Absolutely not. We're already seeing devastating effects of a warming planet, such as the fires just last year in Australia and California, and by most estimates, we're already above 1 degree. As such, the 1.5 degree target has become the standard to what we in the global scientific community recommend holding to. However, we are already on track to blow past that target without a sizable and immediate shift in how we live. So, while the 1.5 degree C target comes from science and the 2 degree C mainly from political thought, it isn't as though 2 degree C should be tossed aside as it's a very real number and a target worth trying to stabilize below. Further, it is a number that fits well into the human psyche as a rallying cry, to be honest. Even our name, South of 2 Degrees, is a direct reference to keep global warming below, or South, of 2 degrees of warming. Because, let's face it, south of 1.5 degrees just doesn't have the same ring to it. So, 2 degrees C is broadly accepted now, and scientific research has been conducted as to what the implications are at this level, and they are very real and far from attractive. Further, while the global target of 1.5 degrees C is agreed upon through the Paris Agreement, our current trajectory puts us passing that as early as 2030 and will likely land somewhere above 3 degrees C by the year 2100 if things don't change. So with that in mind, let's look at the differences briefly, then we'll wrap up for the day. According to the IPCC 2018 report on 1.5 degrees, you're looking at very significant changes in just half a degree from the 1.5 to 2 degree C target. When we look at plants, you're talking about 8% of plants will lose half of their habitable area, but 16% will lose that at 2 degrees C. Insects, 6% will lose their habitable area, but at 2 degrees C, you're talking about 18%. 
And it really starts to get depressing when we start talking about the coral reefs because at 1.5 degrees C, you're talking about a 70 to 90% decline in the world's coral reefs. However, at 2 degrees C, you're seeing a 99% decline, effectively wiping out coral reefs around the world. If we look at extreme heat events like the ones we will most likely see this summer as we've seen the past several summers, but as we look at what it'd be at 1.5 degrees C, you're talking about a 14% of the global population would be exposed to severe heat every one in five years, but that would be 37% of the global population would be exposed to severe heat every one in five years at two degrees C. And then finally, when you look up at the Arctic, At 1.5 degrees C, you're going to see at least one year in 100 a sea ice-free summer in the Arctic. However, at 2 degrees C, you're talking about seeing that once every 10 years. That's absolutely appalling. And to bring that into concrete terms, science has showed that sea ice is imperative for the survival of polar bears. So without it, we might as well kiss them goodbye. And on that far from positive note... That's the end of Climate Change 101 and our show for this week. Join us next week as we finally dig into some of the scientific papers as we're going to look at the research on the recent fires in Australia as well as the hole in the ozone layer and how that's changed since the Montreal Protocol. As always, keep up to date with all the latest information on our website, southof2degrees.org, or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.